0: previously on the redemption podcast
1: and that's basically the reputation i wanted you know do not mess with this guy he doesn't just straight up he doesn't give a fuck
0: this is the redemption podcast brought to you by westwood westwood and i'm johnny kovach
2: And I'm Ariella
3: Kozen.
0: Jason never denied guilt when it came to murdering Charlene in 1993. He actually felt relief for his first nights in jail. But relief soon turned to a fight for survival. He was not only combating what clinical psychologist James Graberino diagnosed as rejection sensitivity. He was now fighting other inmates under the watch of correctional officers that provoked these gladiator-inspired battles. He was also fighting thoughts of hopelessness, and for good reason. He stopped counting the number of stabbings he witnessed after it reached 100 That much violence takes a toll on a person's mind. He was tired of, as he puts it, watching someone else get butchered. In 2000, at age 28, Jason was transferred to another facility, Calipatria. He was reclassified, or transferred to low-level security because of good behavior and zero write-ups. Once there, he took two vocational classes, silkscreen and garment-making. Once those ended, he eventually landed a job as a boiler room operator, making him feel after 20 years like he had a purpose. A lot of inmates hated working in there because it was hot, loud, and dirty, but that's exactly why Jason liked it. He found a place where he was able to be alone for the first time during his prison sentence.
2: Would you say the job had a positive effect on you?
1: One of the advantages was these other institutions, Tehachapi and Calipatria, had a lot of programs to offer. There was something to do with my time now. I was taking vocational classes. I was working. uh, I had something to look forward to, um, and that was part of the change. The the other part came from uh, while I was still in the shoe and realizing that uh, something had to change. I started making a habit of uh, trying to find anything that was positive. Uh, I did a lot of reading in here. Didn't have a TV or anything, so I did a lot of reading. Um, I made a point to read all the books that I was supposed to read while I was in high school, but unfortunately dropped out. So uh, everything from uh, To Kill a Mockingbird and Flight of the Intruder, to uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, Uh, and everything in between. Um, And that's where a big part of the change comes. Is is not just reading these books, but understanding the importance of them. There's a reason these are all mandated reading in high schools and stuff, is because they have, um, basically they have teachings about uh, morals and character and stuff. And reading all these books and and trying to understand them uh, gives you a bit of a moral compass, so to speak. Uh, I read a lot of self-help books. Uh, the first one being uh, We're All Doing Time by Bo Lozoff. Uh, great book. It's, it's a basic prison meditation yoga book um, written by a guy with a little bit of a past himself. Uh, and, uh, and a lot of guys read this book. It's, it's, there's copies of it all through the system. Uh, but uh, just making that fundamental change and actually wanting to change and 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 deciding to do that, and, and that changed a lot of my attitude. Um, fortunately, I already had the reputation, so I wasn't having to prove myself to people over and over again. So I, I did have some, I'm going to say some space from some of the stupidity that goes on in prison.
2: How
1: often did you think of Charlene? This is um, this is a question that I get asked a lot. Uh, if I ever thought about Charlene and my crime and other stuff, and uh, I and I know this, I don't want to sound cliche, but the fact of the matter is, it's one of those things you think about every single day. Um, every day that I woke up in prison, I knew why I was there. Uh, and I thought about it, so yeah, it's for someone not to think about that or you know, pretty much every day, uh, not just me, but for anybody, whatever crime they were in, in there for, uh, being in that environment every day and not thinking about it, you'd have to be just uh, completely out of touch with reality. But yeah, it, it was, it was something that myself and I know a lot of other guys. Uh, that I've talked to, it's one of those things that you think about every single day.
2: What exactly were the thoughts? Were you thinking, were they regrets or were they wishes? Like you wish that you hadn't have done that. That's a. Or was it more thinking about about her kids?
1: Even the thought process changed over time. I told you when I first went in, I was angry at everybody, including my victim. Um, as time progressed and I actually started realizing that I needed to change and I started to make that change, uh, I did start thinking about uh, Charlene and her family and how it affected them uh, and how how the impact that I had on, on people. Um, it, it, it was an evolving process uh, of how I thought about things. Um, I did do the uh, uh, would've, should've, could've, and that's a really dangerous path to go down, especially when you have that much time on your hands because you could really get lost in would've, should've, could've. So, um, And I did do that for a while, and I realized um, I had to stop that part and stop wanting to change the past because the, the past is set. I needed to start changing the future is, is what I needed to start working on. Well, the present and the future. Uh, and, and fortunately I was able to uh, do that.
2: Even though Jason's attitude and settings changed, violence had a way of
1: following him. In 2010, um, I was involved in a riot at Calipatria State Prison. Um, it was actually spilled over from another facility. Uh, there was some stuff happened on another facility, Sea Yard, and the a lot of the guys that weren't involved in it directly in order to stop another riot from happening on C Yard they transferred a bunch of the guys to A Yard uh, which resulted in a riot on A Yard instead of C Yard this was between the Crips and the Whites um, and the numbers were approximately 60 on 12 Um, during the course of this riot I was uh, stabbed and beaten uh I was stabbed eight times. Uh, I left that yard in an ambulance, went to Pioneer's Medical Center. During the course of the riot, I'd been knocked down three times, and one of the things that I knew, it wasn't my first riot, but one of the things I knew in a riot was, do not stay down, because people can kick a lot harder than they can punch. Um, I'd been knocked down. Three times, I managed to claw myself back up into the fray every time. Uh, I had six or seven guys surrounding me, fighting with me. Um, and it was, was the worst beating I've taken in my life. Um, at the end of it, uh, they'd actually started shooting live rounds with the Mini-14. Uh, Mini-14, it's a 5.56 round. They were actually shooting live rounds and, to quell the riot. Um, but the last time I'd gotten knocked down, actually it was the fourth The fourth time I'd got knocked down and I didn't think I was going to get back up from it. Um, uh, there came a point, um, it was a, a moment of clarity that... Through my head, I had uh, uh, this thought just went through my head uh, and it was in the middle of a riot with grenades going, tear gas grenades going off, bullets, uh, people beating me. Uh, This thought just floated through my head that so this is how it ends. When they started shooting the live rounds and people started to disperse and, and prone out uh, I was able to get back up um, just, in a, um, just in a complete daze. They started coming around, doing the triage, and uh, I was one of the first ones they told. They handcuffed me and took me into medical, uh, along with another guy. Um, this guy, one side of his head was swollen up real bad, and uh, while we were sitting in medical, uh, he started vomiting, and so I was telling the guard that was keeping an eye on us, I told, I told him, you need to get medical over here right now. Uh, and he was like, why? And I was like, this dude's throwing up. That's He's got a head injury, and he's throwing up. That's really bad. And uh, so I, he finally got the medical over there. As soon as medical came in and looked at him, uh, they put him in a helicopter uh, and life flighted him to a hospital. Uh, turns out he had a fractured skull and two, two broken vertebrae. Um, he was one of the guys that went down, and that's why you don't go down in a riot.
2: Jason was counting his blessings. He knew his survival was part resilience and part luck.
1: Fortunately, uh, all the stab wounds were... It was. It was a small, crappy knife is what saved my life. If it would have been... Anything but, I wouldn't be talking to you right now.
0: After he was treated, they took Jason back to the shoe and had him see a psychologist.
1: I knew I was messed up when I realized I couldn't even read. I couldn't finish a paragraph. And I, you know, I, I told you before, I, I'm a voracious reader. I couldn't, I couldn't finish a paragraph without losing my train of thought and having to go back and read it, Don't, not even remembering what I read. I was sleeping maybe, if I was lucky, two or three hours a night. Um, anytime I heard any kind of a noise, I thought it was somebody fighting or somebody sneaking up on me or something like that, which is really insane because I was in a cell where people can't sneak up on you.
2: Jason was diagnosed with PTSD. That meant another transfer. He went from Calipatria to Salinas Valley to be treated with psychiatric medications like Prozac. That also meant going back to general population, also known as the main line. Jason knew this would force him to align again with the Aryan Brotherhood. He decided if he was going to get better, if he had any chance at a better life in future, a change would have to be made. <laughs>
0: What made you decide that you were done with the mainline?
1: After 20 years on the mainline, all of it level four, maximum security. Um, Some of the worst yards, worst prisons that the state of California had to offer. Um, I I realized that it was only getting worse. The politics were getting worse. The program was getting worse. Um, And the one thing that was changing was there was starting, starting to be... Parole for lifers. There had been some court cases that had changed some of the laws. There had been a little bit of a shift in the way they approached uh, the parole process. Um, The same month that I was going to one of my parole hearings, uh, where I might have actually had a chance of getting out of prison, you know, and if not that one, one of the future ones, there was a hunger strike organized by the Aryan Brotherhood and the Mexican Mafia to get more privileges for the guys in the shoe. When I approached the leadership on the yard, the shot callers and whatnot, um, and explained to them my situation that I had a parole hearing coming up the same month, I was told point blank that nobody gets a pass, everybody has to participate uh, regardless of the circumstances. And I said, all right, thank you. And I walked off the yard. Um, I got to the point where I realized I had to do what was best for me and not anybody else. It's as simple as that. And uh, walked off the yard and, and never looked back with no regrets.
2: He had a quick debriefing that included signing paperwork promising he would cut all ties with any known gang members. Then, with the help of his floor officer, Jason was on his way to the SNY yard to try programming. So can you talk about SNY?
1: My only regret is not going to SNY sooner. It's that simple. Um, on a mainline, 90% of the guys are screwing up and don't care, and about 10% of people are trying to program or trying to get out of prison.
2: When you're talking about programs, what does that entail?
1: Just being able to go through a day without a fight or a stabbing or a riot. Um, they still happen, but nowhere near as often. Because there's there's program all the time, regular programming, yard, um, not a lot of lockdowns, you're able to have a lot of self-help programs. A, A, N, A, um breaking barriers uh life or support group uh malachi dads they got a uh, cga criminal gang members anonymous um a ton of programs that you could participate in and start learning and figuring out uh the stuff you need to know to uh i say be prepared for parole but it's not just that it's Uh, The best way to prepare for parole is by making yourself a better person. If you put in the work then it comes across to the parole board.
0: We had the chance to talk to a man named Christian Pfeiffer, who believes in the benefits of positive programming. But this 43-year-old isn't just some random proponents of implementing programs. Christian just happens to be the warden at Kern Valley State Prison in Delano, California.
3: The, The implementation of programming yards is not, it's a, just basically a ground up way that we were dealing with our population. How could we identify where there was an issue on the facility and then taking action to ensure the population who wants to try and better themselves and wants to rehabilitate um, has that opportunity to do so. Uh, we have a very unique design on our sensitive needs facility um, which allowed us to have the perfect opportunity to house um, problematic, problematic inmates in one area Um, for better observation and removing them, uh, moving them away from those individuals who wanted a positive experience uh, within the prison setting. More importantly, I think, than the education side, is a lot of the uh, self-reconstructive type uh, organizations that that we deal with. Um, Inside Out Riders is is a good example of that, Arts and Corrections um, from our grant. But we also offer Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous. Um, We have groups that are specific to inmates with life terms and help them deal with what's going on with them here in the facility as well as preparation for board and things like that uh, for potential release.
2: After getting the proper care, really for the first time in his life, Jason was one of those individuals who wanted to make positive changes. We wanted Jason to discuss his personal transformation.
1: So, uh, going to ask why I was able to actually put into seeing a regular psychologist on a regular basis. Um, I was part of the Triple CMS program, which is clinical, uh, correctional, clinical case management um, services. And uh, I was able to start seeing a psychologist every 90 days. Um, when I first started seeing the psychologist and she saw that I was serious about talking about my past and dealing with my issues and, and trying to work on myself, uh, I was actually bumped up to where I was seeing a psychologist once a month. Um, it made a lot of progress there. Jason
0: no longer had an identity crisis. After 44 years, he could finally say he was comfortable on his own skin. And that came from doing something he had never been able to do
1: before, ask for help. And, and that's one of the big differences, is being able to, to get the help from an actual psychologist on top of attending all the different groups. Just the whole spectrum of things that are available that were available when I went to the S and Y side uh, made a huge difference in uh, the way I um, I saw myself, and uh, really helped me to uh, understand what was going on, uh, not only around me, but what was going on inside of me, and and able to deal with. I'm um, just going to say the demons from the past, keeping that stuff inside for so long, literally keeping stuff inside for decades holding dark secrets inside for decades uh just it just compounds the problem but finally being able to open up and and talk to somebody about what i'd been through and and how it made me feel uh was just a huge uh weight off my shoulders
0: even though jason had been up for parole before this time his fourth time felt different he wrote out the story that led him to prison, suggested as an exercise by a psychologist. He presented the story known as his causative factors to the board.
1: When you make a real honest effort to change, regardless of what it takes, it may take writing causative factors, it may take seeing a psychologist, it may take um, just maybe changing everything about you. Whatever it takes to do it, when you honestly do it, 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 it comes across.
2: It was on June 29th, 2016, at age 44, that Jason was deemed fit for parole.
0: In your own eyes, when did you make the transition from J07943 to Jason Wayne Clark?
1: My first thought was um, that I was no longer J07943. It was on June 29th, 2016, the day I was found suitable for parole. In reality, um, it was at the beginning of August that I realized that I was no longer a number, that I was a person. And the reason for that was um, a letter I got from uh, an incredible person.
0: Just as Jason couldn't go a day without thinking about Charlene, There was someone else who couldn't go a day without thinking about Jason. Someone he never thought he would hear from, let alone in the form of a letter. It was from a 25-year-old woman, Mariah Lucas. She was only 17 months and 17 days old when her mother, Charlene, was murdered by Jason. Today, she is a mother of three living in Southern California, studying to be a forensic psychologist. We were lucky enough to sit down with Mariah and hear her side of the story.
2: Why did you finally decide to reach out to Jason?
4: So the day before Thanksgiving, um, 2015, I got my wisdom teeth removed and I ended up getting a secondary infection. So I was hospitalized for um, being septic and um, I spent a week in there, I was intubated, sedated, like the whole shebang, had multiple surgeries to remove it Um, and I remember Which people may think I'm crazy for this, but I remember vividly a dream or something where I'm standing there and I'm like looking at my mom and I'm like reaching to her. All I can see from my perspective is my hands reaching out to her and her just smiling, like very gently shaking her head. She doesn't say a thing. I don't hear her voice, nothing like that. But that was all. It, It was like a fraction of a second long. Um, but then I found out that they had lost my heartbeat for a little while during the surgery. And every time they tried to take me off of the, um, the breathing tube, I would just crash. Um, and so after talking to the doctors there and telling them about that, they said that you know, it's, a lot of people believe that that would have been like a religious thing, you know, like a spiritual moment um, of your mom telling you, no, it's not your time. For some reason, like there was this little voice in the back of my head like, you need to do something more with your life, you know, and then like randomly, Jason came into my mind. Like I remember telling my husband, I'm like, I think I want to write Jason, Like I think I want to go see him. And um, he was like, well do it, you know, what what can happen? He turned you down and uh, I just remember telling him who I was. and. I wanted him to know that, yeah, I had a crappy life for a little bit, you know, but I wasn't a bad person. Like, I didn't allow the, the events that took place after my mom's death to make me someone who I, I know I'm not.
0: Those traumatic effects included memories of a drug-addled father who abused and molested her and was seemingly always on the run from the cops. They lived in five different states by her sixth birthday.
2: What did you want to accomplish by writing to Jason about your childhood?
4: I think it comes down to um, wanting him to know that it's possible to go through some really shitty things and not be a shitty person. Um, And I knew in my heart that there was something that something that led him to do what he did. You don't just kill somebody just because. No matter what my family had said, no matter the stories that were told, you don't do what he did without something leading up to it. And so I knew in my heart that there was a reason that he, he didn't he did. And so I didn't want him to spend his life in prison thinking that he had not been forgiven. So that was the last thing I wrote in there was, you know, I forgive you and If nothing else, please forgive yourself.
0: But writing wasn't enough. She wanted to meet him in person, offering to drive to the prison regardless of how many hours it would take. She was under the impression that he was never going to get out. Months went by. She never heard back from him. the final episode of the redemption podcast and can you tell us about this letter that you received
1: I had come back to my cell from work I was a program clerk so I worked at night and uh, I got back to my cell and my cellie had told me I had a letter it was on my bed and uh, So I did my usual routine, got ready for bed and climbed up on my bunk and uh, picked up the letter. Didn't recognize the name or the address on it. About the time I got done with the first paragraph of the letter, I had realized it was from Charlene Heinemann's daughter, Mariah, Um, and, and it was like getting kicked in the chest. I read the first paragraph, I realized who it was from, and I put the letter down, I couldn't read it no more.